When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Alison Rudd of The Times, who's just been named Sports Feature Writer of the Year. And I'm also with Daniel Storey, the author and columnist, whose time in the winner's circle will definitely come. Talking of honours, no one seriously doubts that Liverpool will be crowned champions very soon. But the doubts are suddenly crowding in on Frank Lampard. For the record, I think he's just what Chelsea need. But another home defeat in the FA Cup against Liverpool on Tuesday will tempt fate. Won't it, Ali? Yeah, he's not... He's beloved, but he's not in an easy situation. And I think... The Chelsea hierarchy accept he came in at a difficult time. They also knew that being able to make signings and that Frank would be the perfect person to bring through youth. And that has worked out. I still think even if you allow for results up until now, you can't say the youth has been a mistake. There's been a lot of great stories coming out of the young players that were in the academy on loan coming back. He's done that integration extremely well. But there are, I do think there are battle lines being drawn at the club. For example, the way Lampard is, has decided to drop Kepper, world's most expensive goalkeeper. That's quite a statement if you're a mm. young manager in your first Premier League job, even if you've got all the Chelsea credentials. And, you know, let's not forget the club like to see their investments being used properly. They're a club that aren't ashamed of their wealth, but they expect if they buy a player, invest in a player... The manager's, you know, the manager's supposed to exploit that fact. And the fact that he didn't just drop Kepper for a game or two to take him out the limelight or, or to ease, it's almost like he's, he's basically saying, I think Caballero at 38 is preferable to the world's most expensive keeper and a young one who you could argue when you're at that stage of your career, what a goalkeeper needs is, is a, a lot of faith and to play through the mistakes and let the world know that you know you've got the world's most expensive goalkeeper and you're going to stick with him. If he keeps having disappointing results, that's the sort of thing that would tip the balance against him, I think. Mm. But a, a young manager has to be able to make his bones, mm. if you like, in a, in a mafia sense. 
that's what he's doing. And, and that takes a degree of courage and professional certainty, doesn't it? It does, but football doesn't exist in this sort of cycle of year zero. You don't get free passes anymore. And to an extent, Lampard had the closest thing to a free pass because of the transfer ban, because of that mandate to bring through young players when, frankly, Chelsea didn't have an awful lot of choice. They now do have choice, and this summer will have plenty of choice. And the slight irony with Lampard is that as Chelsea are able to spend more and more on that squad, the, his USP, his, the reason for appointing him sort of decreases because if you are just going to be a club that then spends money hugely and therefore you need a manager that manages those egos and is happy spending that money, then Lampard has less of a, an identity at Chelsea. He's, he's less of himself in that squad. Mm. And I have no doubt that he will last beyond the summer, whatever happens from now on in. But if they don't start next season well, then suddenly the pressure will be ratcheted up on him. Mm. What do you think are realistic expectations on him? I think they expect... Chelsea to be playing Champions League football. I don't think they would have said that at the start of his tenure, but it's been a crazy season. Mm. And there's, you know, there's a lot going on elsewhere. And I think that has increased the impetus to think, well, actually, we're a really well-run club yeah. and we've got some fantastic players here who've, who've won everything. Yeah, we, we, in this season, the way that other top, traditional top six clubs are faltering, you'd have thought by now Lampard should have got to grips with the assets at his disposal and be putting together a clear identity that could get them at least fourth. I think part of the problem is, is in what I've just said, I don't think Chelsea do have a clear identity. It's not entirely certain when he goes three at the back, when he goes five at the back, when he goes four at the back, whether he, why he's doing that. Is he too deferential to the opposition or does he feel he has a, a grand plan? And I, I, I don't think Chelsea do have a grand plan I think he's still, he's still finding his way through it at Stamford Bridge. This is the year of clear identity. If mm. you haven't got one, you, you will drop points. Mm. What are the sticks do you think they'll use to beat him with? In, in, perhaps looking at Giroud and saying, well, has he been underused? I think he has been underused. I can see why he kept faith in Tammy Abraham, who we must remember, and it's, it's, it's easy to forget now, started the season in in outrageously good form and fully justified Lampard's selection of him from day one onwards. But I think particularly relegating Giroud temporarily behind Michy Batshuayi was a mistake. I think there was a, a, an almost a Mourinho-type message being sent to the owners as if to say, I wanted a striker in January and you didn't give me one. But Giroud is a better player than Batshuayi. The problem is, is that playing him requires a slightly diff a change of system. And as Ali says, when you don't have an identity to start with, when you then start making changes, it can quite quickly look like a little bit of a mush rather than a deliberate change from plan A to plan B. I think I was absolutely right. You watch Chelsea and if you didn't see the shirt colours, you wouldn't be able to say that's a definite Chelsea performance. That's what I expect of Chelsea. Mm. Things just seem to sort of happen to them a little bit in games. Mm. They've got Liverpool on Tuesday, as, as I mentioned at the start of the show. What type of team do you think Jurgen Klopp will actually put out? My gut feeling is he'll put out a really strong team. I think the fans and people connected to the club and maybe himself too, slightly fed up now of all this treating the domestic cups with... Well, for each time they've played a weak team or a team that isn't Liverpool at all, there's been a good reason for it. There just comes a line in the sand where you say, that's enough, let's take these cups seriously. Mm. And also, I do think Liverpool, they really have to... We could give them the 
buffer they've got, they really are good enough to win more than just the Premier League this season. They've already won World Cup and all that. Uh, Club World Cup. So, I mean, they're good. And they did that almost sleepwalking. So they, they're good enough to start adding more trophies. They don't need to obsess about the Premier League anymore. There's certainly no need to rest players thinking we've got to keep one eye on our form in the league. So I would be very disappointed if it wasn't an extremely strong team and that Liverpool made it clear they feel they're good enough to win more than just the Premier League domestically. Mm. And do you think, Dan, that that result at Watford, Klopp's already accentuated the positive, as you could you know, probably expect <laughs> him to do. Yes, the monkey's off our back almost. Mm. Will there be a positive reaction to that Watford defeat? I think he'll probably demand one, because the slight nagging problem for Klopp, and it's, it's completely unfair... Their brilliance this season became so quickly normalised and their league at the top, lead at the top was so extraordinary that we pretty much got used to them as Premier League champions in January. And human nature therefore says, OK, well, what next? What are you going to break Arsenal? Are you going to match Arsenal's Invincibles record? Are you going to lift a, a Premier League and Champions League double? Are you going to attack the domestic cup competitions? As I say, it's incredibly unfair. But if at the end of the season they just win the Premier League by... 12 points, which would have been an astonishing achievement at the start of the season. Some Liverpool fans, and perhaps understandably, will say, well, we could have done more here. We could have really set, set down a market to Manchester City and said, we're going to do something that you haven't done. And that includes, A, selecting a strong team against Chelsea, and B, winning a game that they're more than capable of winning. Mm. How much are they capable of winning in terms of Champions League, FA Cup? We'll give them the Premier League and the World Cup, <laughs> Cup already. <laughs> yes, I'm just that sort of guy, you know. Are they capable of winning both those cup competitions? Yes, they're capable of winning the Champions League because they are feared. I think we t we almost take Liverpool for granted here, but uh, on the continent, they are people are scared of them. That gives you so much leeway to absorb a poor result. That the efforts that I was at Atletico Madrid v, v Liverpool and th the sheer effort that not only the players but the manager and the fans and everyone associated with that club had to go through to get a result against Liverpool. You don't summon that amount of adrenaline and effort unless you're absolutely terrified but don't want to be of a team. It's unsustainable for them to do that again so I think, I think Liverpool will, will go through after the second leg and I just think once you know how to win in Europe, that's the other thing as well. It's one of the things we always beat up English teams about. We don't understand continental football. You have to play differently in Europe. You have to be more disciplined in Europe. You have to be more patient in Europe. Liverpool have got that sorted. So I, I don't think it's ridiculous at all to think they're going to retain their crown in Europe. And the FA Cup, it's just a mindset. And I actually think if you're going to make the defeat against Watford mean anything at all... It's that, yeah, that whole invincible tag's gone, but let's win the FA Cup. And then no one will, no one will think about it. They'll just think, wow, what amazing quadruple winning season it was. Mm. Mm. Did they miss Jordan Henderson? Or do they miss him? Yeah, I think they do. Partly because James Milner also wasn't there in terms of the position he plays, but also the, the leadership, the demand for, demand for better, the demand for more. Because... I'm sure Nigel Pearson would have said to his Watford players, we make sure you score the first goal, because if you score the first goal and you're ahead against this team, there is no huge need for them to come, you know, ten to the dozen against us to try and get back into the match. They have a healthy enough lead at the top that we will seize the advantage in the game. Jordan Henderson is a player that won't accept that. He's a player that will tell everyone around him, this isn't good enough. 
you're playing for Liverpool, we are unbeaten so far for a reason, let's keep that going. It is no surprise that, that I think that they looked a little bit lacklustre without him. But it should be said that they have looked lacklustre occasionally with him. I think this was just the first time that they've produced a slightly limp attacking display and also looked defensively uncertain in combination this season. There have been times when they've done either or, but yes, he's a, he is the leader and I think that is the reason why he's the standout Player of the Year candidate. Mm. And he is basically Jurgen Klopp incarnate on the pitch, isn't he? With Klopp, is his real triumph being seen to be authentic in what really is a pretty inauthentic sport? I don't think you can fake that. I think he is authentic. Mm. And Liverpool were desperate to sign him once they realised what his character and approach to the game was. They felt he was the perfect fit and... Sometimes that can happen. Somebody emerges and you just think, oh, they would go so well there. That is their role in life. And that is his role in football. If you, if you just go through his entire life, it's as if it was being written so that he would end up bringing glory to Liverpool and in a certain manner. I think one day, and I think it might be you, Michael, who writes the story of that arc because Liverpool were more attractive to watch last season. But no-one minds that Klopp has made Liverpool more pragmatic because it's him that's done it with his players and he's seen what you have to tweak to be winners. That's an amazing story. that He's gone from bringing us the world of football, bringing us quite thrilling football, and he's just tweaked it a little bit to make it a bit more grown-up, a bit more pragmatic, a bit more dour when it needs to be. So in that sense, he's perfect. And whether he wins or draws or loses... You never feel a little bit dirty when he speaks <laughs> afterwards. It's, it is authentic. Mm. And he does understand not just the football club, but the community that that football club services, doesn't he? That's yeah. his great strength. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole 12-man cliche is sold as a slightly cheesy or inauthentic or manufactured entity, but, it, but it's not. It's a cliche for a reason. It comes because if you can inspire every fan that goes to the game to think we're going to win today, I'm sure we're going to win today, we'll find a way whatever happens to win, whether we're 2-1 down against West Ham and not playing very well or whether we are in a Champions League final against Tottenham we will win today then how couldn't that be passed on to the players and if it, particularly if the players recognise that it's the manager that's brought that to those fans because before him, Liverpool fans you know, they loved their club but they they didn't like them very much. They were a frustrating and infuriating team to watch. And if, if Klopp has inspired those fans to believe that, how couldn't you be inspired as a player to believe yeah, All he had well? to do... So they lost, Liverpool lost 1-0 in Spain and it was a cauldron. It was an amazing, amazing mm. atmosphere. I mean, the, the players and the manager were, were slightly mm. staggered. Was that one of the done. best atmospheres you've experienced? No, it was one of the most well-orchestrated I've experienced. It was, yeah. Well, it was a bit too... The conductor. Yeah, it was yeah. a bit too perfect. But it, it, it worked. I mean, the, the beautiful bit was the way they lined the, the fans lined up shoulder upon shoulder upon shoulder with red flares welcoming the team bus. Mm. And that gave the... They hadn't done that before at the new stadium. That gave the players a lift. So it had all been amazing and therefore understandable that the team were lifted and everyone was on a high. Afterwards, all the local media were. And all Jurgen Klopp had to say was, there's a, a second leg and welcome to Anfield. 
That's all he had to say. And that's, all he, that's the only message he's in such... He has such a great, deep relationship with the fans that all he has to say is, mm, let them see welcome to Anfield. Let them see what that means. And the fans will respond and they will put on a show that outshines what, what we saw in, in Madrid. Yeah. Win the game of the season, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and how, how could you not respond to Klopsworth when you've seen what it can do last season against Barcelona. You've seen the, the impact that that can have, that sense of, again, it, it, it's sold as a cliche, that sucking the ball towards the cop. But, you know, when, when Trent Alexander-Arnold comes up with that corner routine and Divock Rihi scores, it does feel a little bit almost preordained because <laughs> it, he makes, you know, he makes that theatre normal for, for Liverpool. And, yeah, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Mm. Let's... Look at the FA Cup, if we could. Being played in midweek, the fifth round, what are the pros and cons of that, do you think? I think there are more cons. I, I wrote a piece to preview the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Carabao Cup final, trying to find out where it stood in terms of do people really want to win it or not. And what the Villa, people connected to Villa were saying, including Andy Townsend, who, who you know, knows best, he won it twice with, with Villa and, and once as captain, was he feels that the League Cup might even matter slightly more than the FA Cup because partly lots of things, well, one of them was this move, moving it to midweek. It's, just like, it's like pushing it to one side almost. If it's such a prestigious cup, then, then make room for it on the prestigious days, which are the weekend. I know there are, there are a whole host of very good reasons why you'd move it midweek and the calendar has become overly complicated and it's like, it's like, it's like a joke, I feel. But you've, you've got the same number of matches, you just keep moving them around. They still exist, don't they? It's ridiculous. I see all the logic to doing it, trying to free up time for a winter break and so on, but I do think it slightly diminishes it and makes it feel like... Just, just, just takes away that, that glint of, of it being special, I think. Mm. Can, can realistically, Dan tradition and the traditions that you know we were brought up with as kids mm -hmm. which I used to love the FA Cup and still do can that sort of tradition be protected in the modern era which is becoming hyper commercialized hyper elitist mm. yeah hyper capitalist yeah and and if I, I think my honest answer and it's not a particularly <laughs> it's not a particularly upbeat one is that it can only be protected if you convince the biggest and most powerful clubs in the country that it's in their interests to protect it. And I don't mean financially, because I suppose financially it isn't, probably isn't in their best interests, in so much as they want to rest players because they want to save their money and their resources for the competitions that, that matter more, they believe, to fans. If you can convince the biggest clubs that there is a, a section, a large section of their support that does value the FA Cup highly, and for, we've talked about Liverpool those supporters that go to Stamford Bridge, if the club can be convinced that they really do want to win this competition as well as the Premier League, then I think it can be protected. My hope is that we spend so much time worrying about the FA Cup as a sort of means of protecting it that almost our, our gripes sort of serve as a bit of a blanket and it does protect it in that there would be a back, such a backlash in that there's a backlash at the moment and nothing has ever even been announced other than this move to one round to a midweek. I hope that does protect it, but I, I fear that we'll need to convince the big clubs first. Mm. But it is a competition that clubs can look at and realistically say, yeah, we can win that. Spurs being a case in point, probably, and trophies are going to be 
Mourinho's only justification, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I increasingly feel that about, about Jose at Spurs. It's not his fault that he's lost Hungman Son and Harry Kane. That would be a blow to any manager who had those at his disposal. I'm not sure his reaction to that setback has been entirely logical or sensible, but he knows, he knows perfectly well if at the end of the season he has brought Spurs a trophy. And that's what he does best. He wins trophies. Mm. He's really good at winning trophies. If he can win a trophy for Spurs, whatever happens in other sectors, whether it's in the league or in the Champions League, if he could bring the FA Cup, if, if that's the sacrifice, it's worth, worth making for him to, to make sense of his appointment, if you like. Mm. I know he was actually appointed because Daniel Levy thought Spurs... That he just didn't want that lovely new stadium not hosting Champions League football. But the fans are, are more concerned about this long, long drought without silverware. Mm. And when, when Mourinho was appointed, even those who loved Pochettino and were not happy at all about having Jose at their club, they did acknowledge, well, he does win stuff. Mm. We'd quite like to win stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think he will take the FA Cup probably more seriously than any manager that around at the moment. Mm -hmm. What's the move? music there at the moment. You were there on Sunday, yeah, uh, against Wolves. Were the fans... You know, it was probably an avoidable defeat. What was the reaction? What was the feel of the stadium to that defeat? Well, it's etching. They won't like the sound of this. It's ever so slightly towards the sort of mood music you got at the Emirates before Arteta arrived. This fatalistic sense mm. that, well, you know, they took the lead twice. I doubt... I doubt anyone in their heart in that stadium thought it was, it was uh, going to be a victory. That was a lot to do with the way Wolves reacted, as in they decided to completely ignore the fact they'd <laughs> gone behind and just keep playing their game. Yeah, I mean, it was a good contrast in that sense because there's a flimsiness and a frailty to Spurs. It was a strange lineup, you know, one of the most fated centre-back partnerships for Tongan and Alderweireld. They're both on the bench. It felt, it felt very peculiar, as if I've lost, I've lost the two best strikers in the Premier League, arguably, well, two most interesting and reliable forwards in the Premier League. I'll dump at the same time two of the most respected centre-backs and that'll somehow create this potion where we, we solve all our problems. It was peculiar and I do feel like he's flailing around slightly trying to work out how to handle the loss of two such key players. But the, the overall effect is nobody on the pitch looks entirely certain of what they're doing and what their role's supposed to be. Probably Eric Dye was the, was the most content. He wants to play at, um, at centre-back. But he, he made a mistake. He made a very bad mistake. So uh, the, the, you asked about the mood music, and to answer your question, it is the, the fans are slightly perplexed and, and they don't feel, even if they're winning, they're going to see it through. Mm, you, you know, read your piece, Dan, mm. and you, you put the finger very firmly on Serge Aurier, which I wasn't surprised <laughs> by. Is he the symbol of mm. Spurs flailing around? Yeah, I think he defines the team at the moment. And he has this... He will tendency to do something very good, not often in his own half, normally in the opposition's, but it, it doesn't actually ever seem to give him enough confidence to take him through the rest of the match. Normally with footballers, when they do something very good, particularly early on in a game, it sort of buoys the team and they're able to sort of ride that crest of the wave at least until to the end of the game and, and often for two or three games onwards. Tottenham seems like, it seems like every action in the match is a fresh thing. You know, they change formation 
halfway through yesterday because they weren't not playing very well when they went behind 3-2, but they didn't force Patricio to make a save in the last 20 minutes. It just it, it does all feel very haphazard and trial and error, and that, that is Serge Aurier, I think, as a right-back. But for £15 million, you know, I know the money isn't everything, but for £15 million a year, it would be nice if you had a manager who wasn't just trying lots of different things until he found one that works. So that seems a very, very odd thing for one of the most respected managers of the last two decades to do. Contrast that, then, with Nuno. Mm. You know, he was there, was... there were some very good pieces in the build-up to that game. Johnny Northcroft did an excellent job in the Sunday Times talking about almost like a no-conflict approach to management. How impressed have you been by him? No, incredibly impressed. And look, did you notice the way they, his entire staff celebrated their goals mm. at, at, against Spurs? You, when, when that happens, you either think, oh, it's a bit hubristic, <laughs> who do they think they are? But when he does it, you really feel what he's... The message he's sending is, this is... We are a complete team here. Everything that, you know, that goal happened because it's, we've planned mm. it that way. And not just plan the move that might have led to the goal or, you know, the... the the personnel he's chosen, but the fact that they had the strength of character to... I think I was most impressed with their strength of character because mm. they went behind twice and it, they did not... They didn't change at all. Oh. They, they acted as if it was a little blue bottle settling on the shoulder and they just flicked it off. They, there was, And they have this amazing run in London. Since Wolves have been promoted... And Nuno has not lost a game in the capital, which you could you could you could probably make a theory. Well, that's because football in London's <laughs> going downhill, and the powerhouses are up north. But I think it's also a sense of he might feel well. They don't take you know. Do they take wolves that seriously down here? We're going to show them. Mm. There's a sense of you know, it's like chip on the shoulder, but making it work for yourself. Is there something similar with Sheffield United under Chris Wilder? You know, they and they've got they're at Reading in the cup. They could be a really dangerous team in the FA Cup, couldn't they? Yeah, well, there's, a, there's with both teams, there's a sense that as soon as they get the ball, they're thinking, right, we're going to try and score now. There's no sense of, right, well, we've, we've averted danger, so we'll, we'll breathe out for a bit, we'll exhale and we'll just get back to where we were, we'll pass it round, occasionally pass it round the back. But generally, when they got the ball yesterday, they were, well, we can score within 10 seconds here. If we do the right things and we know the, what those right things are, and Sheffield United are exactly the same, they're very well tactically drilled, that they know exactly what they're doing before the opposition works it out. And you're absolutely right, that's incredibly dangerous because it means that if a team treats them lightly, they will humble them. And even if a team treats, you know, prepares perfectly, they'll still back themselves to be better prepared than the opposition. And both managers, in, in slightly different ways, I think, pride themselves upon that. Mm. What do you make of Leicester at the moment? You know, they've got a winnable cup tie against Birmingham. They've wobbled a bit recently, you know, culminating in a defeat at Norwich. Is that down to someone like James Madison, who's very quietly having a really bad spell? Well, Vardy was missing, wasn't he, mm. against Norwich as well? And I... They're not a one-man team, Leicester, at all, but I think he's so symbolic. When Vardy's playing and playing well, I just think he's one of those players that lifts the team completely. Mm -hmm. It's his personality, the energy he shows, the sense that we can, you know, change tactics a bit and just launch it to him. He'll probably collect it and volley it in. You know, he's, he gives them that sense of we can do anything. And if 
it, it must be really hard to maintain around the uh, training ground the sense that if he's not there, it's all right, lads, you can still play well, because it must, it must have an impact. So I think there's still a team that rely too heavily, yes, on Vardy. Madison less so, but I think he does pull the strings, and if your string puller is, is not on fire, then that, there will be a dip also. So maybe. I also think if you sort of track Brendan Rodgers' career, when it's got when it's got serious, when it's got heavy, when, when the spotlight's on, he has wobbled. He, I think he prefers to be slightly under the radar yeah. than people focusing and telling, telling Leicester that's a game you're going to win or that's a game you must win. Mm. A club that, at which it's impossible to remain below the radar is Newcastle. Uh, this is a ground old season for them, isn't it? Are they, are they likely to lose against West Brom? Uh, yeah, I think they probably are. I mean, I, I saw Steve Bruce saying that he will pick a, a strong team and I think he, he doesn't have a choice because the one accusation or the, the, the biggest accusation or the biggest emblem of Mike Ashley's lack of leadership at that club is their performance in domestic cup competitions, which is absolutely wretched over the last decade. And Bruce has a chance now to... Uh, he's already taken them into the fifth round for the first time under Ashley's leadership so they can go one stage further, but... Yeah, they are they are dismal. I, I I am more prone or to 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 criticise Bruce as well. They do have eight new players this season. They do have international fullbacks in in Danny Rose and Lazaro. They have a very good goalkeeper. They spent forty million pounds on a striker who they've pretty much left isolated. They have exciting wingers in San Maximan and Almiron. There isn't. There are there are fewer excuses this season, I think, than in. But out of those eight players, only two played against Burnley when they when they failed to score yeah. again after failing to score against Oxford and Norwich. Yeah, because they they are a team that they're basically relying on one of Miguel Almiron or Sam Maximum picking up the ball in a sort of quasi wing back role, seventy yards from goal, beating three players, and then at the moment putting it very much on a plate for Joe Linton to score because if you don't, he isn't finishing the chances and. Mm. It's, it, it, that's very hard to do on repeat, and they haven't done it at all over they, the last few failed, weeks. They failed to score uh, at St James's in in the last three games, and you kind of that really ought to do our heads in because <laughs> yeah. that is that is one hell of a stadium that yeah. can lift a team. I'm not saying they'd necessarily win because they're at home, but you'd expect them to be able to summon a goal. It's ridiculous. Mm. Mm. And you've got Joe Linton being played wide left. Which struck me as desperation stuff. Well, let's give that a punt and yeah. see what happens. And you had, I saw Isaac Hayden this morning saying, well, it's no surprise that he's struggling because he, he's not the same as Salomon Rondon. And we've been asking him to do the same thing, which is hold up the ball, hold off four players and set someone up. And that's a very difficult thing to do. He played alongside Luka Jovic. Sorry, no, he didn't. He played, he played when he was at Hoffenheim, he played in a front three. And Newcastle have played him as a, emphatically as a front one with mm. no one within the same postcode of him and it's it's very difficult it's very easy for a striker to get low on confidence if they do that and it's very hard to get that confidence back and yeah. they're going to be lucky if they stagger their way to safety mm. let's get the the hype machine going a bit wayne rooney back at old trafford on thursday with derby you know we talked a bit about frank lampard and his transition into management is wayne rooney a derby manager in waiting I think that's what the club thinks. It's what Wayne Rooney thinks. I don't know. Has anyone mentioned will... that to Cockle? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
they sort of do, and he just takes it in his stride, actually. Um, it's sort of, it's, it's a pipe dream for as long as Rooney's playing, basically, and there will, become, there will be a transition period. I, I think it's, I, I love this new intellectual Wayne Rooney. You know, I just, do you remember when we all first met him and he went on to um, Sports Personality of the Year? He won Young Sports Personality mm. of the Year and he was chewing gum mm. and looked really young and gauche and people were saying, he's a young man with no manners at all. <laughs> you, you wouldn't just say at that point, this is someone who could go into management because it really doesn't matter who you are. If you're going to management, you have to be able to cope with the, the media and the cameras and not saying the wrong thing at the wrong time and not chewing gum at the wrong time. And I, I just, and then he became this sort of, then it was rumoured he was going to be too big to make it at the top. And then he, be, you know, he became this real sort of out and out sort of goal machine and you didn't think there was a lot of nuance to him. And he's sort of maybe had it in him all the time, but I feel like he's reinvented himself. So he wants to be a Perlow figure. He wants to be someone that controls controls the play. If 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 there's a good pass in a game, it's him. He he sees the whole picture. And that, you know, that leads to management, doesn't it? If you if you're analysing games while you're playing them in that way, then you're going to be a good manager because you're sort of practicing. Watching it's it's what Nuno said in his interviews before before the game uh, at Spurs. He said it's great being a goalkeeper because you, you're learning management while you're playing because you're watching tactics and you're watching how things unfold. And I feel like Rooney's doing that now as he's playing for Derby. He's sitting back and he's he's watching and he's working out patterns and seeing what the opposition do and where he has to drop to in order to collect the ball and so on. So he's definitely reinvented himself as this sort of almost an intellectual. And I think he will become a manager because even if you're not entirely sure he has everything, I mean, it, it, you would, it would put bums on seats and make you money to have him in charge of your team. Mm. And when you've experienced that level of celebrity, you have to be self-aware anyway, don't you? Yeah, I think it, it, it helps that he's, he's had his years in, in America and he's having a season, maybe two, in the championship where he can... He can play at a pace that suits him now. I think he, he has made good career decisions. I think he left Manchester United at the right time. I think he left MLS at the right time and got a move that put him back in the public eye over here. Um, and I think that there's a potential that taking over Derby in, in a year's time is a, a very clever thing to do. They've got an incredibly incredible academy set up at the moment, which is being remarkably successful. They beat Russia Dortmund in the... You know, the youth league last week or two weeks ago so the, it, it could be a good time to take on a project like that because to have a name for them who is someone that, who they still recognized who could still inspire them with you know memories of what he did not so long ago I think is probably important I remember there's a really interesting story about when they asked Ravel Morrison very early in his career what he thought of comparisons to Paul Gascoigne and he said I've never heard of Paul Gascoigne and it was just two or three years too early for him. Rooney doesn't have that now. He's still very much in the public consciousness. And I don't know, I think he... Euphemistically, I'll say, I think he'd need a very good man next to him to help him as a manager. But if he thinks he can do it, why not? Yeah, yeah. And the public eye is always focused very firmly on United. It's looking at David De Gea at the moment with a quite a bit of a jaundiced look, isn't it? You know, another mistake against Everton... If Dean Henderson goes back there from Sheffield United next season, is he likely to be number one? I'd make him number one. I think he's astonishingly good. I don't quite know what's gone wrong with De Gea. It might just be he's struggling to adjust 
being the goalkeeper a team, for a team isn't very good. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're not, they don't offer the protection that they did in his pomp. And I think at his pomp, De Gea was, was the world's best. I, you know, you could, you could put together a showreel of some quite staggeringly that-can't-be-possible type saves where he's been going to his left and he suddenly managed to stick his toe out to the right and you think, what reactions? Mm. But maybe that's also part of the point. Those sort of reactions, they're, they're so super fast that if you're just, just a little bit older, a little bit jaded, you don't quite have them. They do say with goalkeepers, you have to have that special ability to absorb your mistakes and still stay arrogant. That's quite a hard thing to to put together. I also think there's something weird going on overall in that there's been an awful lot of goal, goalkeepers making hashes of things this season. It seems mm. to be... Jordan Pickford. Well, al almost every week there's a laugh-out-loud moment with a goalkeeper that's supposed mm. to be world-class. I don't, I don't really have a good reason for why that should be, but it does feel like... They were either goalkeepers were either quite boring or <laughs> or reliable. Maybe it's the transition that you know managers are demanding more from keepers in terms of distribution, and they're just having to do too much work. Maybe they should go on strike. Maybe they're being asked <laughs> to do too much. Why not? Why not? With United, they've got Manchester City in the derby on Sunday when the Premier League returns. Mm. How big is the Manchester derby compared to other domestic derbies? Do you think? It's, a, it's, it's an odd one in that it, it, I mean, it's clearly a huge derby, but actually, apart from the 2011-12 the season, they've not really been, although they've both been successful over the last two decades, it, it, it is naturally happened that one took over from the other. They've never really been fighting at the top for a league title. I know Manchester United finished second a couple of years ago, but City were streets ahead anyway. So it, it's almost a match that is, is big, of itself rather than because of the circumstances in the league at the time. You know, I know Manchester United, you know, for example, won at City to stop them winning the league a year ago, but then they were always going to win it anyway, two years ago, but they were always going to win it anyway. So, yeah, it feels like it's, it's, it's more bragging rights than, you know, has significance on the league. But it's an odd one in that I think six of the last seven have been won by the away team, which is an extraordinary thing in, in Premier League. It, it, it's normal that in a derby, the home ground draws people in, but maybe that reflects on both sets of supporters. I don't know. But Pep Guardiola will want this. You know, I know the league is done, but this is the one game between now and the end of the season in the Premier League. He will say, actually, let's put down a marker here because he will have been very, very annoyed with their performance and result at home to Manchester United. I, dis I disagree. I don't think it matters that much at all anymore. I think what matters to both those teams is beating Liverpool. I, I went trawling mm. round Manchester City Centre, asking, just asking fans, you know, what do you think of all the rivalries? They only cared about Liverpool. Mm. I mean, it's quite mm. nice to be, you know, you, <laughs> if you're a United fan to beat City, vice versa. But the hatred, the mm. hatred, the real passion, the I'd sell the puppy I've just bought... <laughs> If we could get a goal against You're them. You're a hard woman, you know. <laughs> that, that's, that's what fires them along. And in fact, I think, I think part of the reason that derby has become diluted is because of this sort of strange feeling that if you're a United fan and, and, and we beat City, that's giving a favour to Liverpool and we don't want to do that. So mm -hmm. they've even lacked motivation to win the game in isolation. Yeah. It's probably an unfair point. I'm sure it'll be pointed out to me that it's unfair. <laughs> but aren't Manchester City almost a bit of a vanilla club? OK, they've won six out of the last seven domestic trophies, so they need you know, the utmost respect for that. But is there something about them which is a bit 
one-dimensional? I think it probably depends who you speak to. I think there is a section of the support, and it's the section of the support that was at Main Road 20 years ago who will vehemently disagree with that. And there's also a section, a kind of bizarre subsection now of Manchester City supporters who are, it should be said, very online-based, who will even more vehemently disagree with you, but almost as if to, to prove their love, as if they have to prove to themselves and to other, maybe to other City supporters or to Liverpool supporters. It's almost become an answer to that Liverpool sort of it means more thing mm. that City have to get some City supporters, and it is only a very small minority, seem to have to get very defensive about the club. I mean, 90%, 90 95% of football supporters don't need an outside influence or outside respect to enjoy their club. They just go to the games or follow their clubs and enjoy it for what it is. And I think we probably need to remember that. But mm. it's that very loud minority at the moment, which are, I wouldn't say giving the club a bad name because there's an argument that they've, they've managed to do that themselves. But yes, that is incredibly ultra-defensive of, of everything the club does. Vanilla is a very good word, though, because I spoke to a, a City fan who grew up next to Main Road, went to, has been to every single final semi-final at Wembley, gone to every big moment, decided not to bother going to the Carabao Cup final because he just felt it's just ticking a box now. Mm. And he said, I even feel the players just look like they've ticked a box. Well, that's vanilla, isn't it? Mm. Just ticking a box. Uh, so do you think they define themselves or they will define themselves this season by winning the Champions League? Yeah, completely. It will re if they did, it would reinvigorate... The club, it would give them a, an almost a new sense of identity. Yeah. It would give it, that sense of they all hate us, we don't care because of the prospective fan. It would it would be a political, but in a in a sort of aggressive, not done before sort of way. I mean, it would be historic. So yeah, I think it would certainly change them from being vanilla for mm. sure. Mm. What does it say about the current standard of the Premier League that? If you looked around now and had your European Super League, who would win that? Would, you know, I'd look at that and think, well, either Liverpool or Bayern probably would win it. Bayern are the, the best team I've seen this season. I mean, I, I've seen them against Chelsea and Tottenham when they've been devastating and scored 10 goals in 180 minutes, so maybe I would say that. But yes, they're the best team I've seen this season by a distance. But they also have the intrinsic problems within the Bundesliga in that they are, apart from maybe this season, have been incredibly dominant and have been able to focus on the Champions League more. It's, 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 it's odd, maybe, that the, the one season that they do have a Bundesliga title race is the season that they seem to be more impressive in Europe than at home. I think English clubs are, you know, it's, a, it, it's only a year ago that we had every finalist of both the European competitions. So I don't think we, we can mourn any great shift. And it's, only, it's also only two years ago that... that, that Germany didn't have a single quarter finalist in either competition. So I think these things just go in very quick cycles and, and next year we may well have another, and we may still have two English Champions League finalists. I don't think we will. I think Bayern will be one of them. But yeah, I think these things just go in very small cycles and people respond to success from other clubs. Maybe there's a slight complacency on the part of Premier League clubs if to say, well, we're top of the tree now. It'll be easy next season. But I think on a club-by-club -club level, I don't think they think like that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've spoken about tradition and the value of tradition and the threat that perhaps it's under. I just want to end by just dwelling a little bit on an initiative by the Premier League at the end of last week 
the Hall of Fame they, they are going to introduce later this month. Is that harmless diversion or is it something a bit more jarring, do you think? Well, my gut reaction was, oh, no, really, <laughs> as opposed to, oh, I can't wait to find out who goes in and who's first and who's second. I'm just becoming slightly bored with lists. And if, if football, we are a country that loves football, and if we don't know who our star players are and the players who demand respect are, I don't, I don't think Hall of Fame, which is very American, it's unnecessary, it feels like a sponsorship Thing. It doesn't feel like something the people need. And I, I honestly don't even think if it was me being inducted, I'd feel terribly chuffed about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, it, it, it just feels like, again, a, a concentration on the noise and the content than the football itself. I mean, I know they're celebrating individual football. They will celebrate individual footballers. But as Ali says, we already know that. We already have player of the years and we already have our actual memories of watching football. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to rank them because we can store memories about more than one person in our mind. It's, yeah, it, I just, it's very American. And I think it's a, it's a... The fact that it's a fan vote as well, I think it's just a tool to create more noise and, you know, controversy and debate rather than focusing on the actual football. Mm. Well, it's a corporate indulgence. Harmless enough, but let's not forget one thing. Football was not invented in 1992. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.